0: At the end of the day, God has our best interests at heart. The word, brother, you the word. The word. And now for Faith Over Fear. Welcome to Brothers of the Word, because brother, you need the word. I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful to be with my extended family. For those of us in the room, for those joining online, I just invite you to open your heart to receive what God has for each and every one of us, that he would speak clearly a fresh word into our hearts. And as we start, I just want to begin by lifting our hearts, lifting our gaze, lifting our attention to the Lord above. So if you join me in praying, Father, what a gift what an honor, what a privilege it is to worship you. God, may we not just speed past that moment, but continue to remind us that you extend grace to us, that you grant us access into the most holy place to be able to sup with you, to be able to have communion with you, to be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, God, I thank you that as we've Worshiped you in this time that we've invited your spirit to be here among us. Now, Lord, as you set the atmosphere, I pray that you would feed us all from your word. God, less of me, more of you. None of me. All of you, God, I pray that you would give each and every one of us ears to hear. Give us hearts to perceive. Give us a yearning to understand, to grow together, to deepen our love for you. And ultimately to be challenged to walk out the love that you called us to do here in the earth. And so, God, we love you with our hearts, with our minds, with our souls, with our strength. We ask these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus, And every heart in agreement said, amen. Amen. So what do you do when things don't quite pan out like you imagine them to pan out? could be your life, it could be your relationship, it could be a job, it could be a ministry, it could be a calling, it could be a ton of things, but if we're all honest with ourselves and with one another, there come times where things don't quite work out like you envision them working out. Now, a great majority of my life was lived right down the street from this place. It's now some high-rise apartments, but it used to be the home of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium when I was coming up, and my grandfather was the general manager of the stadium from the late 60s when the Braves came to town from Milwaukee until they blew it up in mid-1990s before the Olympics came. And I'll never forget that I was marked and baseball has forever been a part of my life because I remember a vision of my grandfather at that corner at the employee entrance waiting on me whenever I went to a game and he'd be sitting in his golf cart and my mother would drop me off And I get in the golf cart and we go under the stadium and zoom up all these ramps. And eventually we would land in his suite, his office on the club level. And for the longest time, I didn't realize that people paid to go to baseball games (laughs) because I had access because I had my grandfather. But he instilled the love for baseball in me to the point that I played for 15 years of my life. And now I have three children of my own that I get to coach and love and shepherd and steward and other young men who desire to learn the game. But I vividly remember that my first nine years of baseball, learning to love the game, was played at Adams Park in Southwest Atlanta off of Cascade Road. And that's where I cut my teeth. That's where I learned some hard lessons. But it started at Adams Park. And then when I turned 13, feel like Paul. When I became a man at 13, I kind of graduated. And there was this ceremony. Now, mind you, when I was in the 12-year-old league, there were some triplets who played, and this was over 30 years ago, Michael, Dustin, and Justin. And I've always been a small guy, but these boys were cut from a different cloth, and they were humongous. They were twice the size as everybody else, and they hit third, fourth, and fifth in the lineup. And every time I pitched, it's like they just poked fun at me and All three of them just took it over the fence, over the fence, home run, home run, home run, back to back to back. And I was discouraged. I was ready to get up out of the 12U. And then I graduated to be able to go up on the hill to play at John A. White Park. And I was like, man, all right, I'm moving on up a little bit. And I'll never forget a few things about me. I was short. Kind of still am. I was fast. Kind of still am a little bit. And I was the leadoff hitter. That's kind of what qualified me. And I'll never forget My first at bat in the 13-14 league, I wind up and I'm sitting there for the first pitch of my 13-14 career. And I knew that the balls were going to come faster. The speed was a little different. And the first ball comes and pow, hits me on the side of the head. Not exactly the start to my career that I thought. And in that moment, as I laid there on the ground, I, I remember a few things. Of course, the first thing, a person will never forget their mama's voice. She's screaming to the top of her lungs, my baby, my baby. And she's running onto the field to make sure I'm still conscious. And then, you know, my coaches and my teammates, they just kneel kind of in in honor to make sure I'm okay. And they're silent and they're quiet. And then playing as long as I had, i made a few enemies. (laughs) And so some of them were snickering and laughing and kind of feeling like I got what I deserved when I got hit in the side of the head. Again not necessarily the start that I envisioned. So again, I invite all of us to ask that question. How do we respond when things don't go quite like we envision? Do we throw a temper tantrum when we don't get our way? Do we shut down emotionally and relationally and just say, I'm just gonna cross my arms, I'm gonna take my bat and my ball and I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna be immature and childish? Some people are like that. There are others who choose fear and they just suffer from paralysis emotionally, spiritually. They just shut down because they're afraid and they say to themselves things like this is why I never put myself out there like that. This is why I never speak up. This is why I never move out of my comfort zone because I don't know how this thing is going to play out. So how do we respond when things don't necessarily go as we planned? Do we choose faith? Do we say, God, I don't understand, but God, I trust you. God, none of this makes sense at all, but I choose to trust you. God, even though I had a different vision and since you tugging me in a different direction, I don't quite understand, but I'm going to trust you anyway. Having said all that, I'd like to invite us to look at the gospel of Mark chapter five tonight. If you want to turn there with me. We're going to look at a story that I believe many of us are familiar with, but my prayer is that God will allow us to see it through a new lens. And I personally like Mark because I feel like Mark is Mark is the equivalent of like the Marvel movies of the Gospels. I don't know if anybody likes Marvel, um, but I love a great story and Marvel is masterful in just drawing you in. You don't have to enjoy superheroes to love marvel they're masterful storytellers so if you grew up liking spider-man as an adult you'll love to just learn and see these different glimpses into the life of peter parker and that's kind of like what mark is like you'll see words like again you'll see words like immediately it's like non-stop it's like hey we got to get to what we're getting to and it's amazing that it's 16 chapters in mark and the first 10 are about the majority of jesus's life and then the last six are reserved for the final week of his life. Ten chapters cover 30 plus years of some change. Last six cover that final week of his life. So you'll see words like again and immediately and it's nonstop. Jesus goes to one town and heals and preaches and then he gets in a boat and retreats and tries to just get a moment of solitude and next thing you know people are thronging him again and he can't catch a break. So I want us to pick up In Mark chapter five, beginning in verse 21, it says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And notice what Jesus did. Verse 24. He went with him and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Somebody say 12 years years. and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better. But rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, somebody say immediately, Immediately. the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately. There's that word again turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciple said to him, don't you see this big crowd of people? Do you really think we'll be able to identify the person who touched you? He looked around to see who had done it, because it's just like Jesus to be relentless in his pursuit of us. says, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, some who said, these are people coming from Jairus's house, telling him your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, three times in this, what we've read, we've seen this immediately word. The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And they were what? Immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Not exactly how Jairus envisioned his life playing out. We had a mother at our school this week who lost her 22-year-old son, and we're burying him tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. I don't think any parent envisions themselves burying their child. But as we step into this part of the gospel, we see a man by the name of Jairus And it tells us a few things that we can understand very clearly. The first, it helps us know that he is a leader in the faith community. He's a ruler of the synagogue. He's a man that has position. He's a man that has influence. And even though he has all of these things, that still does not keep him from being affected by the difficulties and the troubles of life. We also learn in this passage of introduction to Jairus, not only is he A leader in the faith community, but he's also a father. We don't necessarily know how many children, but we learn in this moment that he does have a 12 year old daughter that's dealing with an illness that's serious enough to the point that she could potentially pass away. And the third thing that we learn in the midst of this is that he is desperate. He's desperate to the point that he Goes after Jesus with all that he has and he trusts beyond the shadow of a doubt. He slings himself at Jesus, falls at his feet and says, if you would only come to my house, I believe that my daughter could be made well. It takes a lot to push a person to that point of desperation. But that's exactly where we meet Jairus. He humbles himself. He sheds his title and his status and his influence. And he comes just as a father desperate for need for his child and says, Jesus, if anybody can do anything, I trust that you can do it. And Jesus sees the desperation in his faith. He sees the faith that this father has. And Jesus says, "Okay, I'll come with you. Let's go. And immediately as they're walking along the path, what happens? The same thing that happens wherever Jesus goes, because word has gotten out about this man who's coming to teach and transform and challenge and convict and bring new thoughts. And so people stop him who need to be healed. People stop him who are desperate for just a touch. And we're introduced to this woman that we know that we are so familiar with this woman that's been dealing with this issue of blood for 12 years. And she doesn't care that Jairus' daughter is at the point of death. She's just desperate for what she needs. And it's nothing inherently wrong with that because we as human beings at our core are selfish. We're very focused on us. We're very concerned about how things affect us. And so we lean into this story of desperation. You've got a desperate father who's worrying about, I don't know how much time my daughter has left. And Jesus says, I'll come with you. But then we have this desperate woman who has this issue of blood. She's been dealing with it. She's tried everything. She's spent all her money. She's seen every doctor that she knew to see. And it said that she wasn't getting better, but she was actually worse off. She was worse off. And Jesus stops to engage with this woman. Because as he's passing through, he realizes that something has transpired as he's passing through. And he's got this natural curiosity that he won't let this thing go. And those closest to him say, Jesus, how really how in the world are we supposed to know in this crowd of people? You want to identify the one who's touched you and Jesus stops. And I can imagine if I was your iris, I'm like, Jesus, we're kind of on the clock. Like we need to pick this thing up, like go ahead and do what you need to do with her so we can go ahead and get to my house so you can lay your hands on my child. It's not playing out like Jairus thought. And this woman's healing is not coming the way that she thought it might come. She spent everything that she's had. She's done everything that she knew to do. And she has this moment of desperation with Jesus. She got honest. She got honest with him because Jesus is like, I'm not gonna let this thing go. Kind of like my kids, if I make a promise to them, they're not gonna forget it. They're like, daddy, you said that we can go for ice cream after school. Daddy, you said I'm holding you to it. I'm not letting it go. And so Jesus, as he's standing there, he asks, who touched me. And as he's looking around, I can imagine the guilt. I can imagine maybe some fear, some anxiety, some shame, some worry, some guilt from this woman. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and she came in trembling and she fell down before him again, we just saw Jairus throwing himself at Jesus's feet. saying, if anybody can heal this situation issue, a few verses later, this woman with this issue of blood throws herself at Jesus's feet. And I love it says she told him the whole truth. She told him the whole truth. And Jesus looked at her. He identified with her. He affirmed her. He spoke life to her. He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You got a desperate father who's worried about the life of his child. Not exactly how he thought this would play out. You've got this woman who's tried everything that she's known to try. And she has this encounter with Jesus and she's healed. He looks at her, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And in the midst of this, Jairus is confronted with this issue in reality of this throng of people saying, Jairus, I got some bad news. We can save Jesus some time because the one that he was going to heal, she's already gone. Don't even waste this time anymore. It's not exactly how Jairus envisioned this thing playing out. He's faced with a decision. Is he going to respond to this in fear or is he going to respond in faith? While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to Jairus. Notice, Jesus didn't say anything to the ones who brought the message. He wanted to keep it focused on Jairus. Jairus, don't lose faith, brother. Don't lose faith. Don't be so concerned about what they say. He says, don't fear, only believe. And then Jesus had to do a weeding out process. And it says, you know what? Everybody that's with you can't really go where you're going. And so he says he allowed no one to follow him except his tight three inner circle, Peter, James, John. And they came to the house of the ruler and Jesus saw this commotion. People crying and wailing. And Jesus came in. And he said, what's the issue? Why are y'all crying? Why are y'all worried? Why are y'all showing out? This baby isn't dead. She's taking a nap. And that sounded crazy. That sounded utterly absurd. And they laughed at him. But what did he do? He said, all y'all get out. All of y'all can get out because you don't understand the point of desperation that I'm at. You don't understand the faith that I have in Jesus to be able to come here and transform everything. After he put him out, he took the father and the mother and Peter, James and John, and they went to where the child was and Jesus laid hands on her. Spoke life to her, and immediately, the girl got up, started walking. She was 12 years old. They were overcome with amazement, my favorite part of the story. He says, don't tell anybody about this. And he told her, give her something to eat. I don't know about y'all, but I come out of a deep slumber. One of the first things on my mind is, what is we going to eat? What is we going to eat? But this girl is healed, and it shifts. It's not how Jairus thought things would play out, but I just want to offer for us to consider the responses that were given at the house. When they first get there, there's crying, there's weeping, there's wailing. People are fearful. And when I read that again this time, I vividly remember the shriek of my mother's voice when I got hit in the head with that baseball. Her first instinct, her maternal instinct was like, oh, oh, no, I labor for that child. I pray for that child. I believe for that child. And it's hard to see your child hurt. It's hard to see your child struggle. It's hard to see your child going through and everybody's crying and losing it. And Jesus said, whoa, y'all need to calm down. It's not like that. It's no reason to be afraid because I'm here. Not only that, this baby, y'all proclaiming death over her. Y'all are speaking negativity. Y'all are speaking against her destiny and her calling and her purpose and her mission. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they say, this fool is crazy. They laughed at him. They thought he was out of his mind. And when I read about them laughing at Jesus, for some reason I could hear through the echoes of time, the kids from that other team, as I laid there unconscious for a bit and they laughed. They found it amusing. They found it humorous that I was in pain. They found it funny that I was struggling. They found it funny that, The person that they desired ill for was kind of getting what they felt like he deserved. And they laughed. Some were a complete and total mess. Some laughed. But after Jesus put them out, we see he speaks life to her. The girl is healed. Next thing you know, she's up on her feet looking for something to eat. So I just want us to consider that first response was fear. That second response was really laughter, but it was almost like unbelief. It's just utter amazement, just disbelief that this was happening. But the final response, it was one of confident assurance. It was one of amazement. It was one that was confident that God was real, that his plan was completely perfect, that even though it didn't look like Jairus thought it would, he learned in this moment that God can truly be trusted. He learned that at the end of the day, God has our best interest at heart. Sometimes he might take us to 285 away around it when he could have just taken us 20 straight through it. Sometimes he'll take us a roundabout way, but at the end of it, he has our best interest at heart. He's worthy of our love and our commitment. And here's something that I is my hope and is my prayer for all of us. When we think about where God has us, I believe truly that he wants our faith to be bigger than our fears. He wants us to have more hope and less doubt. He wants us all to have more joy and less anxiety. He desires that we would be more authentic, more genuine, and less superficial. He desires for us to have more kindness, more compassion, and less jealousy, and less envy. It's my hope that we would, place more trust in God and less confidence in ourselves. He desires for us to have a deeper longing for him and less of an addiction and a dependence on coping mechanisms from technology to other toxic relationships. He's saying, I want you to thirst for me. I want you to yearn for me. He desires for our love for who we know to be greater than what we know. And so I'll leave with this Who we're becoming is utterly more important than anything that we'll ever do. Who God is making us to be is far more important than what we do. And so as we are going about our lives, as we've had to adjust and pivot over the past two years of this kind of new normal and living through this pandemic, I just want to challenge us all that sometimes things don't always go the way that they seem, but God always has our best interest at Let me pray for us. God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you truly are perfect in all of your ways. God, I thank you that your ways are not our ways. I thank you that your thoughts are not our thoughts. God, I pray for all of us here in the room and joining us online that you would give us a deeper longing, a purer thirsting for the things of you. God, I pray that you would help us all to die to ourselves, to sacrifice our own desires and lean towards the things that you're calling us to do. Father, for each and every person, I pray that you would make it crystal clear that if we've been walking with you a month or 50 years, that each and every one of us can take a step closer to you. God, thank you that you help us to walk humbly before you. God, I thank you that there's so much richness and truth and depth in your word that you continue to help us to grow day by day from faith to faith, from glory to glory, from one level to another. God, I pray that you would help us all to have that passion and that zeal and that fire and that sincerity of when we first believe. God, I thank you for the height and the length and the width and the depth of that incomprehensible love that you have towards us. God, help us to rest in that love. Help us all to know, God, that it's not merely about what we do, but you're after our hearts. You're after our desires. You're after our motives. You're after our intentions, God. Father, I pray that we would be holy and blameless and filled with integrity and walk upright before you, God. God, help us to leverage every part of our being to our very core, God. May you use it for your glory and for the benefit of others. God, I'm grateful for my family here at the Ark. I thank you for all that they mean to me, but God, I pray that they all realize more importantly, what they mean to you. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for their purity of heart. I thank you for their intentionality. I thank you for their commitment to see your kingdom come, to see your truth proclaimed, to see your city changed, to see revival come, God. God, let none of us grow weary in our well-doing, but give us endurance, give us confidence, give us strength, Give us faith, give us boldness, give us everything that we need to live out your purpose and your plans for our lives. God, we love you. We're grateful for you. And I thank you for this time that you've challenged us through your word. Help us to continue to become everything that you've designed and destined, God. We're grateful to be your sons and your daughters. God, continue the work that you've started until it comes to the point of completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, God, we'll give your name the glory, we'll give your name the honor, and we'll give your name the praise. And we ask these things in your son Jesus' name. And every heart in agreement said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You are listening to brothers of This was the message titled Faith Over Fear by Jason Thomas. This message is number 6591. That's 6591. To listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 6591 to a friend, go to brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to IWanttogive.com. That's I want to Listen to brothersoftheword.com often because, brother, you need the word. Oh, brother, so. Tchau, e